these are the things that I learned during the fourth week of 2011, January 24th through January 30th. January 24th. What NP is not in P means. Can't solve it though. One day I booted up Minecraft and there was a message of the day that simply stated NP is not in P and I was really kind of curious as to what this meant. And then I ended up going down the rabbit hole of learning what the NP versus P problem is in computer science. And let me tell you, that is a trip to try to understand, let alone attempt to solve, which by the way has not been solved and likely won't be solved anytime soon unless we have a massive breakthrough in quantum computing. I'm not sure how qualified I am to even do the justice of explaining what the P versus NP problem actually is, but I'll try to do the best I can based on a couple of things I've read and a little video I've watched that tried to break it down. According to the Minecraft wiki, in layman's terms, the problem asks if certain problems are inherently much more difficult than others, measured by the computation time needed to solve them. In other terms, you have a set of problems known as P. P is known as polynomial time, and these are generally problems that are easily solvable and easily verifiable. Then you have another set of problems encompassing P called NP. NP stands for non-deterministic polynomial time. These are problems such as Sudoku puzzles or Rubik's cubes, problems that do have solutions, but may be very, very complex to solve and may take a very long time to solve and may be difficult, if not impossible, to verify easily. As an example, let's take Minecraft. This was where I saw that PNP problem message originally. When you break down Minecraft, you can't imagine how much computational power would be required to ever quote-unquote solve it, which puts it squarely in the NP category. Think of all the different ways that folks play Minecraft, all the places that the blocks can go, all the possible combinations of worlds alone, and then factor in all the other things such as item placements, paths walked, all of this. I don't think this could ever possibly be solved, and if it was, it would be very sad. So NP not being necessarily a solvable thing, or an easily solvable thing in any possible conceivable terms, actually stems creativity in a certain way. That is the core difference between NP and P, and the NP problems are inherently not P problems. And if they were, we'd suddenly have a lot of solutions to a lot of major problems in our world, including things such as cracking encryption, or efficient protein folding, or all kinds of other very mathematically complex problems. Attempts to burst the theory of NP not being in P have certainly been theorized, but they've never been proven. And there are plenty of holes in those theories, and it is a running problem that most computer scientists are scrambling to solve and have been attempting to solve for at least 40 plus years now. 
I will leave a link to a YouTube video in the show notes that will detail this problem and explain it a lot better than I can. It was used as my basis for explaining this thing learned a little bit further, and I don't necessarily want to repeat what the video says all that much, but I wanted to just give a quick little rundown of what it is, and wow, it is unbelievably complex, and I had to read and watch all of this material several times to even attempt to explain it here in this episode. It's definitely worth a read and a watch, and just strap yourself in and just try to understand it the best you can. If you are a fan of very difficult problems, or you like to solve 5x5x5 Rubik's Cubes, or Sudoku puzzles that are larger than the standard length, this is definitely for you, and it is something that will get your brain moving for sure. January 25th, Xan migration from PowerPC to Intel, and how horrifying it is. The next three things learned will be centered around the same topic, which was moving an Xan configuration from PowerPC-based Mac computers to Intel-based Mac computers. This was a project I was undertaking at the TV station as part of our server upgrade from an old Mac server which was based on IBM's PowerPC architecture to the then-new Intel-based Apple XServes. Although the irony in this upgrade was that Apple would actually discontinue the Intel XServes just a few weeks after this, so we purchased them right at the tail end of their production line as we still needed them in order to connect to our fiber channel storage system which held all of the TV station data, including past broadcasts and live show storage, as well as any active video editing projects that were going on. The particular process to move the master controller software off of the PowerPC-based servers to the Intel servers was surprisingly painful and complex, and it had to be done in a very, very specific manner, lest you run into problems, or the whole system would just break. To give you an idea of just how complicated this ended up being, I'm going to read you a few excerpts from my notes from the era, just trying to detail the upgrade plans for the migration and the specific order of operations that had to happen. Particularly, Apple details the migration from moving from PowerPC to Intel XNs as back up your SAN volumes, disable spotlight on all volumes, connect at least two Intel-based computers to the SAN, upgrade Mac OS X on the new controllers, add the new controllers to the SAN, adjust volume failover priorities, make an Intel-based controller the primary controller demote the old PowerPC-based controllers, add the remaining Intel-based computers to the SAN, upgrade the SAN clients, enable extended attributes, re-enable Spotlight, and recreate your multi-SAN configuration. 
In addition to these officially provided instructions from Apple, I also had to do a few steps in between interweaving a couple extra features that the servers were also doing, such as handing out network addresses or figuring out where the website hosting would be moved to. A bunch of little death by a thousand cuts sort of things that also had to be factored in. This had to happen in this order, otherwise the controller would get confused, the clients would get confused, and you would face potential data loss or an irrecoverable situation. This was probably caused in part due to the hardware architecture changeover for the controllers specifically. The XN controllers are in charge of basically driving the train, that is the fiber channel storage, through proprietary Apple software which is loaded on both the controllers and the clients. The Intel and PowerPC versions of the software obviously could not jive with one another, and Apple also has a history of when they do processor changes like this or do major software upgrades, they are very strict on making sure that they require you to be on whatever is their current hardware and no legacy hardware. And in this case, the new XN software, XN 2.2, required all Intel everywhere, and there could no longer be PowerPC in play anywhere, especially not at the controller level. And in our unique situation, it was also a little bit extra complicated because we had two XN controllers, one of which was a traditional PowerPC XN server, but the other one was a PowerMac G5 desktop computer, which was doubling as our broadcast system, which was the system that basically played the video out to the TV feed. This was a non-standard configuration, and it was done because at the time we couldn't afford a second XServe server. So we went with a less optimal route with what we had, which was take a desktop machine that was guaranteed to always be on and make it a secondary controller. It also didn't help that this desktop would be prone to freezing and hanging a lot, so it wasn't the greatest situation. I was happy that during this process we would at least solve this problem. Other complications such as we had to first downgrade the version of XAN to the one that the PowerPC controller was running before we could move forward with the Intel-based servers was also a hurdle we had to overcome, as XAN 2.1.1 was the version running on the PowerPC system. So XAN 2.2 had to be removed from the Intel servers and downgraded. Once we had them all in the same uniform compatible version, then we could start taking the hatchet to the PowerPC servers and get them out of the environment and replace them with the Intel ones. Then we had to deal with complications such as remapping all of the desktops XAN configurations to point to the new servers and make sure they weren't confused or throwing errors, which they tended to do, and make sure that all of the user accounts for the folks at the TV station were functional. It was a logistical nightmare. We did get it done, but it was really painful, and we ran into a couple of pitfalls and trap doors all along the way. But it was a good learning experience. But we're not quite done yet, because... January 26th. XN can get corrupted for no reason. 
Welcome to day two, part two of the XAN upgrade nightmare slash process slash solution. So the next day, we were able to get things at least partially moving with the upgrade, but we were running into problems such as random corruption or unexplainable problems. So welcome to my world here. I think part of this was not only XAN, but it was also the fiber switch that was involved here. I had notes talking about zoning getting messed up and having to rescan ports and set up targets and initiators all again on the fiber switch. All these things that you think would just work, but I had to go in and sort of just jostle or reconfigure for no explainable reason other than it just appeared to get corrupted and there wasn't really much else I could do to explain why other than just to fix it. There were also bugs in the visual menu interface when resetting the ports, so I couldn't just do them all at once, I had to do them one by one, which just added to the frustration. I was also fighting the war on another front with the XN clients on the Mac computers not being cooperative with their configuration files and trying to map the master fiber channel storage volume. Whether it be they were trying to hold on to their older configuration from the PowerPC version of XN being 2.1.1, or it was just buggy and just didn't feel like working. I had notes talking about where to find the configuration file for XAN on the Mac clients, moving it out of the way, and then trying to re-add the client. And then, of course, you would get a red herring error message, and you had to then take the original configuration folder somehow and return it back to where it was. And you had to mess with a couple of specific ID files, and it was just such a mess, it just made no sense to me. Then I was also dealing with controller corruption as well. I had to force remove at least one of the XAN controllers, I believe it was actually one of the new ones too, because stuff just wasn't working. And in order to do that, I had to then mess around with configuration files and IDs similar to removing a client or reconfiguring a client, but you can only imagine how nervous I was trying not to lose the entire system by doing this, because trying to force remove a controller is a bit more severe than taking out a client, because now you're dealing with the software and hardware that actually handles and drives the master storage and the data. I have great thanks to give to the Xsanity forums, which unfortunately don't appear to exist anymore. If you try to go to xsanity.com, it just appears to give you just this random huge error. So I think the community and the forums apparently are gone. They might be on archive.org if you search around, but that place was my bible at the time for just trying to fix half of this stuff. I would fight these issues for a little while longer, and then the next day, we learned something a little bit more positive which was January 27th. XAN can also fix itself spontaneously for no reason. So this one, I actually don't know if it was actually really reassuring or if it was just a nice little reprieve from all of our problems. 
but sometimes we just experienced situations where we would have problems trying to even mount the XAN storage volume, but it would just randomly come back sometimes, or maybe a reboot would fix it, or something very simple. It was nice, at least for the users, who just wanted access to their files and be able to just, you know, video edit. For me, I know I was happy that it was working, but I was also kind of thinking in the back of my head, well, why did it randomly start working? Does this indicate an intermittent hardware problem somewhere, or a software problem, or something that will just randomly pop up and we'll have to just deal with it from now on? So it was a double-edged sword. It was good and bad. Over the next coming months and years, we would figure this stuff out, but it was a little bit hair-raising at the time, at least as a result of the upgrade, where we knew at least the old hardware was old and slow but stable, and jumping to new hardware that was different in terms of configuration from the old one was just a little bit nerve-wracking. We were never sure if it was going to break something permanently, because with Apple in particular, it's hard to go back to the old versions and old configurations once you make the jump. Things did turn out well in the end, though, and it was just a fantastic multi-day learning experience overall. XAN is definitely not the prettiest software to have to work with, and I'm not sure how prominent it still is in the industry today. I think it's still around, but back then, oof, it was rough. There was just some stuff about XN that was just either way too buggy or way too annoying or way too involved, and having to overcome this problem was definitely a very, very big task. At the time of this recording, we are also experiencing another Apple processor transition. Much like the PowerPC to Intel days, we are now beginning the transition from Intel-based processors to Apple's own M1 chips. So it will be definitely interesting to keep an eye on if history repeats itself with XAN migrations. It is true that the XServe no longer exists this time around, but you can still have macOS Server installed on things such as Mac Pros or Mac Minis with server components enabled. So it'll be interesting if XN is just as annoying as it was back in 2011 to migrate across architectures, and if the controller migration process is any bit as complicated as it was back then, we shall see. January 28th. Formatting a drive on Windows XP means it may not work in Windows 2000. Let's move away from Apple hardware for maybe just a hot few minutes here, and let's talk about some old hardware, and maybe discuss how this thing learned was maybe a bit vague in its wording, but there is a bit of a story to go along with it. I was doing some side work with someone where we were trying to rejuvenate a computer that was located in an office, and the computer was an NEC Versa 6050MH, which is dated from around 1997. It's a little gray-beige laptop, 
and it was being used as a file server for this office. Why it was still being used in 2011, I couldn't tell you. Who knows? The office was funded by a local government, so maybe there just wasn't the budget there for it. I only ever saw this laptop once, and this project never really got off the ground other than this one visit that I made. But we tried to at least swap out a hard drive for it, which was meant to be either external storage or a secondary hard drive on this little laptop which was running Windows 2000. We had apparently formatted this drive in Windows XP, but Windows 2000 could not read it. I was trying to find online any reasoning for this. I didn't really find any completely conclusive reasonings, but there were some interesting tidbits posted regarding hardware that was manufactured in the 90s and what limitations it might have had in its basic input and output system, also known as the BIOS. There was something called Interrupt 13 that apparently was updated to accommodate for this that could allow certain hardware architectures to read disks of certain size where before they could not. So there's a chance that if I formatted this drive on a system that was much, much, much newer than this NEC Versa laptop and then just tried to pop it into that laptop it probably just threw up its hands and was like, I can't read this. But if the drive was formatted right on that laptop, it was done using that laptop's hardware and software rules and was bound by it, and therefore it would do it correctly. So there's a chance that it wasn't actually necessarily the operating system that was the factor in this. It was potentially the hardware. And the fact that this laptop was so old might have been the reason. I will leave in the show notes a link to the article that sort of took me to somewhat of a conclusion for this by Marcin Pollack. Ironically, this author was someone who provided a training that I attended just a few months ago, so I know he definitely would know his stuff. It's a pretty good read, and I would recommend checking it out if you want to know the details. Not the biggest, most exciting story in the world. It's not often that you encounter something like this nowadays. Hardware has advanced so much since the 80s and 90s, just exponentially, and limitations like this are very, very largely a thing of the past. I don't think if you even deal with a computer as old as maybe 2003, 2004, that you would even run into such limitations anymore. Storage is just astronomical now. Most operating systems are more than capable of handling terabytes, if not more than terabytes, of data and formats, of course. So it really probably only comes down to software nowadays as opposed to hardware instruction sets. The more you know. January 29th. Pressing control and enter in the address bar in Mozilla Firefox surrounds what you entered with a www and .com. All right, here's something that's cut and dry, easy, verifiable, and I can confirm that it still works to this day. If you're looking to be optimal and you just need a www. and a .com on each edge of whatever you're 
typing in the address bar in your Mozilla Firefox web browser, press Control and Enter to automatically insert those pieces of text. And then you're ready to just go to www.whateveryoutyped.com. Nowadays, I don't know about you, but I generally rely on searches other than typing a website directly. Or if I do type a website directly, it's usually in my bookmarks. Maybe behaviors have changed in terms of how we type websites into places. Or maybe we'll just rely on internet history or whatever. This comes from a slightly older day where I guess I was just more accustomed to typing websites directly into a browser. It's interesting how that all works out. Here's a little follow-up as well. Pressing Control-Enter to add www and .com surrounding the text that you enter is actually in all of the major web browsers currently. So it's not just necessarily Firefox. It's Edge, Opera, Internet Explorer, Chromium, Chrome, whatever it is, it's in there. There's your little piece of knowledge for the day for improving your web browsing experience. And finally, January 30th. Ethernet interfaces can be renamed on the Mac. This is another little quality of life convenience feature that doesn't really amount to much, but it's a nice little thing you can do. It is no secret that you can rename your network interfaces, not only on the Mac, but on Windows, and most other places as well. You can do it on the Mac by going to System Preferences and Network, and you can go to the properties of any network connection you have listed there, and you can rename it. So if you have some strange situation where you have maybe a MacBook with a dongle attached to it that gives you a hardwired Ethernet port, and it is named something unremarkable, like maybe Ethernet 1 or Ethernet 2, and you want it to be a little bit more identifiable, you can rename it. You can call it your dongle Ethernet adapter, or something that is very recognizable. You can also do this with Wi-Fi or Bluetooth connections, or anything that shows up there. And let's not forget those of you who like to do things via the command line and terminal. You can also rename interfaces via that avenue as well. It's a nice little feature that makes things a little bit more human-readable. Like I said also, this applies to Windows as well. So if you have a similar dilemma in Windows where you have a desktop with a lot of interfaces or hardware that somehow provides an extra network interface, you can rename all of those. And it just makes it nice. And that's about all there is to this thing. Pretty simple, pretty convenient, and pretty awesome. And with that, we have reached the conclusion of things that I learned during the fourth week of 2011. It was an interesting week for sure. We started out with complex computational computer science theories, and then we went into a three-day XN phenomenon, and then we concluded with just a couple of small technological good-to-know things as well as one little factoid about legacy computing. Pretty fun week overall. Very informative. Lots of frustrations, but a lot of wins at the same time. I'd call it a pretty good week. 
Anyways, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, thank you very much for sticking it out for this long, and I hope you stick around for more. Feel free to subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you digest podcasts from. Also, if you feel you would like to leave a rating or feedback on this podcast, please feel free to. If you are interested in some details, as well as music credits, please feel free to check out the episode's show notes, and I will provide whatever information that I feel is relevant, and hopefully it will be a nice springboard if you wish to dive further into any of these things learned. Things Learned is a podcast that is completely produced, created, and edited by me, with the help of just some freely available royalty-free music. Currently, I release weekly. We'll see if that continues in the future, but for now, that is the case. Check out the previous episodes and future episodes if they exist by the time you are listening to this. And again, I want to just take a moment to thank you very much for listening to Things Learned. I will be back with more episodes in a bit, and I will talk to you next time.